Welcome to Destination DIY. I'm Julie Sabatier. This episode is a collaboration between Destination DIY and another podcast called The Life of the Law. I'm pretty excited about it. Little old Portland, Oregon, or frankly, even little old New York City is not going to stop that tide. So I'd rather we stay with it and surf with it, if you will, than get washed away by it. You've no doubt heard of services like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, and countless other platforms that facilitate transportation, meals, short-term rentals, cleaning services, babysitting, even parking. These companies make up what is sometimes called the sharing economy or the peer-to-peer economy. They're offering ways to connect people who are seeking a service with people who are offering that service. The companies are happy to embrace their image as grassroots and DIY. After all, the experiences they offer are personal. Someone picks you up in their own car rather than a cab. You stay in someone's guest room instead of a hotel. It's easy to forget that these huge companies are making money from each person-to-person transaction. That money adds up, and they're currently spending a lot of it lobbying city officials. The relatively new business model used by peer-to-peer platforms brings up a lot of legal questions that local governments are just starting to grapple with. In some places, that means cracking down on users who are violating current laws. And in other places, it means changing the laws. Destination DIY and Life of the Law have teamed up to explore how and why cities are regulating the sharing economy. DIY means do it yourself. Sometimes I can do without help. DIY means I try to do it all by myself. La la la. When Ariel Lewis moved into her house last year, she was 37 years old and a first time homeowner. You know, it was something that I dreamed about for a long time, but it certainly changed my monthly expenses were going to be um, compared to when I was renting or sharing space with other people. And at first, it was really scary. She did have a one-room building out back, and at first, she wasn't sure what she wanted to do with it. The space is what's sometimes called a mother-in-law unit. It's got running water and electricity, and it's basically the size of a studio apartment. A friend suggested she try supplementing her income by renting it out on Airbnb. Lewis wasn't sure people would want to stay at her place because it's not in one of the trendy parts of Portland you read about in the New York Times. There are quite a few strip clubs around, for example, even if some of them aren't exactly labeled that way. Things like Honeysuckle's Lingerie, where a person could go and enjoy a private lingerie viewing. But it turns out a listing for a studio cabin called The Woodshed for $65 a night was pretty attractive to travelers. And it's been booked up pretty much nonstop since I started booking uh, back in November, so that's a little less than a year ago. Lewis can actually pay her entire mortgage with the income she gets from her Airbnb rental. There's only one problem. It's technically illegal, because she doesn't have a short-term rental permit from the city of Portland. Not yet, anyway. Doing this interview is probably the reason, more than anything, that I will see the permitting process through since I'm going on record about it. (laughs) Many people like Lewis don't think twice about listing short-term rentals on sites like Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, and even Craigslist. Airbnb alone says they have over 800,000 listings. But it's not that cities have outlawed it exactly. It's just that short-term rentals are not included in many city codes. So renters are often violating some kind of local law. Zoning laws, safety regulations, and tax codes. 
And by renting out space on a short-term basis, they're cutting down on the supply of affordable housing for people looking to rent long-term. Cities are dealing with this in different ways. New York has a plan to take aggressive enforcement action against so-called illegal hotels. In New Orleans, short-term rentals are illegal, but so far, the city has done little to crack down on people who run them. Meanwhile, in Portland, Oregon, the city council is changing the rules to make short-term rentals legal. Mayor Charlie Hales is leading the charge. I would like to see these things legalized in Portland because we're not going to stop the tide here in this one little place on the planet. And the tide is very much moving towards these concepts with everyone having this data-rich environment that they hold in the palm of their hand and the ability to do commerce lots of new ways. Little old Portland, Oregon, or frankly even little old New York City is not going to stop that tide. So I'd rather we stay with it and surf with it, if you will, than get washed away by it. I think it's a pretty exciting time to be a policymaker, to be a lawyer, just because there's so much change that's about to emerge. Attorney Janelle Orsi is the co-founder and executive director of the Sustainable Economies Law Center in Oakland, California, and author of the book Practicing Law in the Sharing Economy. Her clients are cooperatives and other groups of people who are sharing resources, not always for profit. Every city and every state will probably have multiple pieces of legislation in every session that will start to carve out more of a space for the sharing economy or to set limits on it. Portland came up with a permitting process for short-term rentals after public comment from Airbnb users, neighborhood associations, and affordable housing advocates. Airbnb has also been working closely with the city as they hammer out the details. Mayor Charlie Hales. It was very collaborative. Now, they weren't always happy with every provision as we worked on it, and I'm sure they're not completely happy now in that we have regulated and increased the cost of doing business, and no business welcomes that. But my sense is we really did get to yes with them and achieved a success here in terms of a reasonable level of regulation. But Orsi has some concerns about cities working so closely with companies like Airbnb that loom large in the peer-to-peer economy. The policymakers are listening quite a bit to those companies, but not necessarily thinking more broadly about the wide variation in how sharing takes place in communities. And so in a sense, I think the laws could be favoring those companies and not necessarily favoring the more grassroots manifestations of sharing. Orsi says she's concerned that new regulations could limit simple transactions. For example, a Craigslist ad seeking a ride in exchange for gas money. She wants lawmakers to consider these common ways that people have been sharing, as well as the new shiny platforms like Uber and Airbnb. So now that Portland has a permitting process, the question for more than a thousand Airbnb hosts operating in the city is do they stop doing what they're doing until they get a legal permit? Or do they openly ignore the law? Orsi says, She can see it from both sides. I do think that if a city has gone to the trouble of carefully crafting regulation, then people should just kind of be patient and acknowledge that, okay, this is what the city has decided is going to be good for the city and maybe be patient with it. But I definitely sympathize with the people who have begun to make their entire livelihoods using these platforms. And when the law changes, it really can be a jolt. 
Ariel Lewis, who rents out the cabin studio in her backyard, says she doesn't intend to stop renting out her place while she waits for her permit application to work its way through the system. And Portland Mayor Charlie Hale says that's okay, for now. Yes, we're giving people uh, a grace period, allowing them to get signed up and registered. We're not chasing people around, uh, hitting them with code violations. So far, there's been a slow trickle of permit applications, which is kind of surprising because it's not a ton of money. We're talking less than $200 for an entire year. It does involve a safety inspection as well. Part of the problem is that Portland's permitting process is so new that a lot of Airbnb hosts don't even know it's an option yet. Ariel Lewis says she knew something was in the works, but... Ironically, I found out because you mentioned it, so thank you. She says the company did send out an email, but that was after our first conversation about the permits. When I asked her if she considered the legal issues when she first signed up for Airbnb, she said, Not at all, and mostly because these sites were up and people were doing it. And that brings up the question, what responsibility do companies have to make sure their users are at least aware of local laws? Janelle Orsi. I think that if you read their terms of use, it's buried in there. They probably say something to the effect of, it is your job to look up your local laws and make sure that you're complying with all local laws. Sure enough, right there in all caps at the top of their terms of use, it says, Hosts should review local laws before listing a space on Airbnb. But when was the last time you read a website's terms of use? A lot of people might make the kind of assumption that Ariel Lewis made. But just because a service is up and running, that doesn't necessarily mean it's legal. Ride-sharing platforms Uber and Lyft actually operate illegally in more than a dozen cities, including Ann Arbor, San Francisco, Philadelphia, and Burlington. Uber declined my interview requests, but on their website it says, Uber is not a transportation provider. This has repeatedly been the company's argument that they are simply a platform, and that since they do not offer transportation services directly, transportation regulations do not apply to them. Several city attorneys would disagree. Take Portland's neighbor across the Columbia River, Vancouver, Washington. Vancouver is a small city with a population roughly a quarter the size of Portland's. It's technically in a different state, but if there's not a lot of traffic on the bridge, it takes me about 12 minutes to get to downtown Vancouver from my house in northeast Portland. I made the trip on a recent Friday morning to sit down with Vancouver's assistant city attorney, Brent Boger. Boger put out a legal memo to the city manager in July that said, What Uber is currently doing is a violation of the Vancouver Municipal Code. Boger explained that ride-sharing services fall under the city's taxi code. And there are a number of things companies like Uber would have to change in order to comply with that code. Each individual Uber owner would have to have eight taxis. They'd have to look alike. Um, they'd have to have a place of business. Since Boger issued his memo saying that Uber is operating illegally in Vancouver, the city council decided that they want to try to figure out how to change the taxi law. And in the meantime, they're not going to bother enforcing the current law. Which is why it's really easy to get an Uber driver to pick you up right outside City Hall. Are you Bruce? Yeah, I am. Thank you so much. Bruce Cheney told me he'd been an Uber driver for about four weeks. I asked him if he knew it was illegal in Vancouver. I didn't know it was illegal. So technically I'm breaking a law. Is that what is happening? Yeah. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> but he's very clear on the law in Portland. 
we can take people into Portland, but we cannot operate there. We can't take anybody from Portland. They said, don't, don't do that. Does that happen? Do people ask you to take them to Portland a lot? I took a person to the Portland airport this morning. But he didn't pick up any passengers at the Portland airport. When travelers land in Portland and pull up the Uber app, this is what it says. Uber has not arrived in Portland. And below that, there's a brief explanation. Antiquated regulations make Uber in Portland impossible. We're working to change that. So how did Portland get a company that's openly flouting several cities' laws to abide by its antiquated regulations? I posed that question to Josh Alpert, the mayor's director of strategic initiatives. He's been in most of the meetings with Uber representatives. I think, you know, we've let them know that we, of course, are interested in having Uber and the other companies operate here. And we've let them know what our schedule is and how we're going through this process. And that if they want to operate here, they need to work with us and go through our process. And at the same time, not do things like operate here illegally uh, while we're trying to figure all of this out. And so far, they're complying. So that's the carrot, obviously. Is there a stick? We're working on that. You know, it can involve impounding cars and, you know, really going after the company itself for breaking the law. So I've just let them know it's in their best interest then to work with us rather than around us on this. In other words, that's a nice peer-to-peer platform you've got there. It sure would be a shame if something were to happen to it. Some cities, like Philadelphia, have impounded Uber drivers' cars. But that punishes the driver, not the company. A lot of cities are paying attention to what's happening in Alaska. The city of Anchorage recently filed a lawsuit in state Supreme Court seeking an injunction that would force Uber to stop operating there. Across the country, lawmakers want to create regulations that will offer protection for consumers without adding so many restrictions that people will just ignore the regulations altogether. When it comes to short-term rentals, attorney Janelle Orsi has what might sound like a radical solution. I think that all cities should ban Airbnb and create their own platforms that people have to register and use. And in that way, the city knows exactly how many nights people are renting out and they know exactly how much income people are getting. And they can extract the taxes through that transaction and even calibrate the number of nights and the amount of income each person can get based on the needs of that particular neighborhood. Josh Alpert in the Portland mayor's office described it as a fascinating idea, but... Well, I mean, the city is not really entrepreneurial, and I don't think anyone really wants us to be, because we do move uh, fairly slowly. And really, our job is to be a regulator. Orly Lobel has thought a lot about the role of regulators. She's a law professor at the University of San Diego, focusing on employment law, intellectual property, and regulation. She subscribes to a theory known as the regulatory pyramid, At the bottom of the pyramid is the unregulated free market. Most things should be left unregulated. And as we go up the regulatory pyramid, we take the smaller sets of social problems that cannot be addressed through market means. And that's just a smaller set. We have to really identify where is there a real need for government intervention. In those small cases, we'll go up the pyramid and have stronger and stronger forms of liability. Lobel says it remains to be seen where peer-to-peer platforms fit in the pyramid. There are two sides in this exchange. There are consumers and there are the service providers. They both need to have levels of trust and some standards in which they can operate uh, without too much risk. 
Some users would argue that built-in review systems on sites like Airbnb and Uber are a good stand-in for regulation. But Portland Mayor Charlie Hale says laws are also a practical necessity. You know, the city of Portland is not a a schoolmarm, you know, wagging our finger at everyone and telling people you have to behave or do it our way. What we're doing here is adopting regulations that in many cases are complaint-based for where things don't work out. The peer-to-peer economy is defined by regulations that either don't exist or aren't really enforced. And it's easy to see how users can buy into this romantic notion that technology has somehow moved us beyond the need for regulations, that the law is obsolete. But laws are not just there to protect consumers. They help govern our behavior as citizens. There are plenty of examples of things not working out that fall well outside the scope of online reviews. A man who rented out his apartment came home early to find an orgy going on. This is why like the guy who got evicted after Airbnb renters held an orgy in his Manhattan apartment. Or the guy in Oakland who rented out his home on Airbnb to a woman who turned out to be a meth addict. She trashed his place and stole his birth certificate. Liability is also a huge issue for ride-sharing companies. Uber is under fire. A man says a driver for the ride-share company attacked him and left him seriously hurt. A man in San Francisco may lose his eye after an Uber driver allegedly attacked him with a hammer. A tragic accident that killed a six-year-old girl prompted Uber and Lyft to change how they insure drivers. And multiple class-action lawsuits claim Uber drivers should be treated as employees with all the responsibility that entails. Even with this abundance of lawsuits, Janelle Orsi says most of the regulation changes prompted by the sharing economy won't be decided in court. I think that most of this is going to be determined through legislation and policymaking because litigation is so expensive and time-consuming. And when litigation emerges, that's often the wake-up call to policymakers to revisit the laws. And so I think even while there's litigation pending, the laws might be changing in the meantime. Both of our legal experts pointed out the cyclical nature of economy and regulation. Orsi says we're seeing something that started with the Industrial Revolution come full circle. Corporations got bigger and bigger, and it just became a lot easier for companies to exploit workers, to poison communities with uh, pollution to create massive outbreaks of foodborne illness. And so that was because things were getting big. And now the sharing economy, in a way, is making things small again. It's creating person-to-person transactions. And the risks are very different. And so the regulations should be also. Instead of big companies doing things the same way everywhere, you have a big company facilitating all these little unique transactions. Right now, there are a lot of unwitting scofflaws out there. People who just start using peer-to-peer platforms and don't even realize that what they're doing isn't legal. But as new regulations create a legal framework for these platforms, some people are still going to be scofflaws by choice. It's unclear how cities will deal with that. And it looks like the companies themselves are going to continue to push the legal envelope. Uber still hasn't gone rogue in Portland, but the company just announced it's going to start operating in four of the city's suburbs. Thanks for tuning in to Destination DIY. 
Our production team includes engineer Brian Kramer, editor Laura Haddon, producer Jamie Cuddy, intern Sasha Peters, and me, Julie Sabatier. And special thanks to our friends at Life of the Law, Nancy Mullane, Caitlin Prest, and Mitra Kaboli, along with editors Ann Hepperman and Casey Meyer. It was so awesome to work with this team of kick-ass ladies. Gray Ann created the Destination DIY theme song. We get legal help from Cole Haver. Support for Destination DIY comes from Leanne Locker and Associates, crafting strategic arts and letters for good. And we couldn't do what we do without the support of our super awesome listeners like Brian Wilson. Take it away, Brian. Hi, this is Brian Wilson in Des Moines, Iowa. The Destination DIY podcast is available for free pretty much any way you want it. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and of course, you can find them at destinationdiy.org. You'll find photos, audio archives, and all kinds of web-only content. All the details are at destinationdiy.org. The team dishes out DIY news and other findings on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget, it's not too late to support the show, just like I did. Just look for the Please Donate link on the website, destinationdiy.org. D-I-Y Maximumfun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.